Alright, so let's talk about the DreamWorks animated Bible stories. This was a rather odd part of the late 90s slash uh, year 2000 part of DreamWorks animated features. And it starts with a very large-scale project called The Prince of Egypt. And I won't kid you when I say that this one was a big success and it eventually did lead into a um, slightly less successful sequel, but we'll get to that in a minute. So it's notable that Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was one of three main voices there at DreamWorks, always wanted to do an animated version of the Ten Commandments when he worked at Walt Disney. So this was another extension of his unrealized desires from his days back at Disney. And, of course, it's worth noting that some of this had to do with uh, certain personalities like Michael Eisner not really wanting to do a lot of, a lot of Jeffrey Katzenberg's uh, ideas. But this is one particular instance where it paid off. Right around the time of the split, between Katzenberg and Disney, he was noodling around with an idea for a story about bugs that had a certain amount of social commentary. And this was what led to uh, a later clash between uh, the two studios when DreamWorks produced Ants and Disney Pixar, of course, produced A Bug's Life. It was interesting and you had very different casts, very different messages, but both are relatively enjoyable. Although Ants, much like with a lot of DreamWorks pictures, is far more adult. And such is the case with The Prince of Egypt. I would never cast this as a film that needed to be seen by smaller children. It's much more a film for your tweens and teens which makes it a very odd audience for an animated feature. You wouldn't expect an animated feature to be catering more to that group. But um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there as well, because it's important to kind of look at the development aspects of this. One of the nicer touches I found about both of the films that were produced from this was that they went with a sort of um, art deco look to the entire film in terms of the characters, their profiles, um, the whole thing just rang of art deco from the ways in which uh, the faces had certain features to where the eyes were very high up and the noses were just a little bit longer as were the jaw lines, the uh, torsos were very uh, lanky and slender. All of this had a certain style to it that made it rather unique among animated features even at that time. And this wasn't the first time that they had used a similar style to that. In, um, in a similar feature called Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron, sort of a similar look was, a, was approached to that. Now, you really notice that particular artistic style as the influence when you get to the appearance of dogs and cats within the movie. 
because for some reason they decided to make dogs and cats into the lankiest, skinniest little nightmare creatures that you've ever seen. Now another thing to note about in the development of this particular film is that like a lot of people they decided to make the pharaoh into Ramses. Now there's a problem with this because they talk about the pharaoh in Joseph and the King of Dreams being Ramses the first. Okay well one of the problems with that is that Ramses the first only ruled for about two years. He was also notable for being um, the one of the pharaohs who was not of royal birth because the previous pharaoh Horemeb, apologies for my mispronunciation of any of these names, was without an heir. So then Ramses I begat Seti I, and Seti I, interesting to note, is uh, said to have regained a lot of the territory that was lost under the reign of Akhenaten, and I'll get to Akhenaten in a moment. But then the, the in uh, Prince of Egypt, that would mean that the Ramses that we're dealing with is actually Ramses II, also known as Ramses the, the Great. And what Wikipedia notes about him is that he continued expanding Egypt's territory until he reached a stalemate with the Hittite Empire at the Battle of Kadesh in 1275 BC. Okay. So, Ramses II actually works for a long-term pharaoh because he reigned for approximately 34 years, give or take. So, this is noted on Wikipedia where they say he had one of the longest Egyptian reigns and is known for his large-scale construction projects including many now famous monuments. So that would seem to be why the Prince of Egypt chose Ramses the Great, Ramses II, as the pharaoh that they wanted to have as the pharaoh for our story. Because then oh, if we're going to use the Israelites as slaves, then we'll want them building big, epic things. And the design and scale of a lot of uh, the various elements here are quite impressive, given the art design. So it's, that's just worth noting, too. But, again, I'm getting a little bit uh, beyond what I want to keep going with. One of the reasons why I note that I don't think they have the right pharaoh isn't necessarily because of anything necessarily in the movie but simply that they don't seem to be going with quite the right timeline and it's always debatable because the book of exodus is not substantiated by archaeological evidence but then again why would they bother keeping track of a group of people who came as refugees and then um, left as freed slaves, essentially. Former slaves. So, I want to offer a little bit of an alternative. Because in Joseph and the King of Dreams, it's stated that um, the Pharaoh is troubled by dreams, and this comes from the book of Genesis. At the end of, of Genesis, uh, we hear the story of Joseph. And the pharaoh 
at, in Egypt, when Joseph is there, is troubled by bad dreams. Dreams of um, just bad images. So, where does this come in? Joseph says, okay, you're going to have seven years of prosperity and plenty for all, and then seven years of blight and struggle. So we need to put aside a portion of our grain so that we can uh, continue to survive, so that the people can be fed. So this puts me in the mind that it was not Ramses I who was the pharaoh under Joseph, but rather Amenhotep III, also known as Amenhotep the Magnificent. He was the father of Akhenaten and the grandfather of Tutankhamun, and he ruled Egypt at the height of its power, building many temples and monuments, including his own mortuary. So, why do I say that? Because Amenhotep IV, also known as Akhenaten, was the founder of the Amarna period, in which he changed the state religion from polytheistic Egyptian religion. So, no longer under an entire group of gods, but a monotheistic religion called Atenism, which focused on the worship of Aten, which is the sun disk. Okay. So, he he basically did this focus, and that would be why he would be so challenged by the Israelites, who are also monotheistic, but do not worship Aten. All of this makes a certain amount of sense. Now, with Amenhotep III building all of these monuments and his own mortuary, that also goes in line with the idea of Israelites being enslaved in order to then build all of these things. And it fits much more of a timeline because Amenhotep III reigned for about 38 years, whereas uh, his son Akhenaten, we know, lost territory and was only reigning for about 26 years. So that's relatively short compared to the predecessor. You follow where I'm thinking? Yeah. So this makes a big difference. Now, another element to this is that uh, Akhenaten was a co-ruler. He ruled jointly with Smenkare. I apologize if I mispronounced that. And it is believed that Smenkare may have been Nefertiti or Tutankhamun. So it's interesting just to note that there was a prince regent in this time, which is an important part of the prince of Egypt, when the son of the pharaoh is made prince regent. So that could easily be telling some of the story around any of this. So it's possible that uh, 
that the pharaoh in the story is Nefertiti, is Tutankhamun, or is instead another child that is not even uh, still talked about. Because uh, while we have very little to know about Nefertiti, and the only reason why we even know about Tutankhamun is because his tomb was so well preserved. Because his tomb was hidden rather than being in a large um, pyramid or something like that. His tomb was hidden away very well so that everything was still there. It hadn't been pillaged for its treasures over the centuries. So this, this is just entirely hypothetical. This is entirely my theory on it. But I want to say that it is more likely that you had Amenhotep III being the pharaoh that Joseph went and served under. And then Akhenaten and possibly this Smenkare were the pharaoh that Moses was dealing with. Where there would have been a lot more questions around monotheism being involved. So, anyway... Getting back to the movie, the movie itself has a phenomenal cast, and it's worth noting that this is actually a Sandra Bullock movie that I hadn't seen. I had actually prided myself on having seen almost every Sandra Bullock movie ever made, which is not because I especially like Sandra Bullock, but simply because I like the stuff she's in just as a rule, especially ever since she became a producer on a lot of her stuff, I've just tended to enjoy the stuff she's in. It's weird. I don't especially like her. She's just kind of there. Okay. So given all of that, the film itself has some very good music, but um, not a lot of toe tappers. It's not it, it, and, and, and I use that term very lightly because it does have some songs that genuinely are catchy. But off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you their names, which is a little bit of a problem. The one that I think is probably the most catchy is the one where Moses is in the desert and he has uh, taken a, a wife and he's come into a life there with a group of nomads. And uh, it's basically all about him just sort of finding himself. And uh, it involves him and the nomads dancing around the fire. And that's part of the whole thing is he never really learned to dance. He was always uh, a prince and he was expected to just sort of live up to the role. So this is just worth noting. Uh but the film itself is really well acted. For some reason, somewhere along the line, I had been informed, misinformed, that Will Smith played Moses, but it was actually Val Kilmer, which I think is great casting, aside from the fact that you have way too many Caucasians for a story that's about Semites and Africans. I mean, you got Jeff Goldblum and Danny Glover, but... That's about the limit of it in terms of the main actors. James Avery did a small part, 
a few additional voices. That's about it. You had a few other actors doing some other parts. But the singing is fantastic. The music is fantastic. Val Kilmer plays opposite Rafe Fiennes. And uh, Moses' wife, uh, Tsipora, is played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Miriam, Moses' sister, is played by Sandra Bullock, as I mentioned her. And her husband, Aaron, is played by Jeff Goldblum. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is played by Danny Glover. And in a particularly good bit of casting, Pharaoh Seti, who was the father of Ramses II, is played by Patrick Stewart. And he is using that voice to full effect. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. He just, he rolls through those vowels. It's delicious. All right. You also have a couple of semi-comedic, sneaky priest characters. One pudgy and short, one tall and thin. Uh, named Hotep and Hui. Played by Steve Martin and Martin Short. It's just a shame that they couldn't get a third priest in there played by Chevy Chase, because then we could have had the three amigos reunited. But as it is, the story uses montage very effectively, as well as some really good animation. One of the more notable effects is when Moses is informed that he is an Israelite and therefore he comes from this subjugated second-class group of human beings within society. He is running through one of the temples, and as he runs through the temple, the camera moves slightly to one side as if it was on a dolly. And we know this because the perspective shifts on the pillars going backwards in uh, mostly a one-point perspective shot. So as those shift and he is running towards the camera to then rest himself against one of the pillars, it's beautifully animated. A lot of the animation in this is genuinely very well done. It's very stylized, but it's very, very well done. It works and goes into the level of high art in terms of its conceptual drawings. You could see how some people were doing some of the conceptual art on this and then going right into the storyboarding. So, for example, at the very well-known scene where God parts the Red Sea for the Israelites to escape from Egypt, um, they do a very interesting job of showing the perspective, showing that the sea isn't just parting. It is actually being sprayed upward several dozen feet into the air. And there is this wide expanse of the Red Sea that uh, you can see in the scene. So then you have these projections sideways and upwards that uh, leave a narrow gap in the middle. And then they, uh, of course, do a very interesting dramatic scene where uh, Ramses is left on the far side of the Red Sea, having had all of his troops drown, and 
being left in an Egypt that is kept dark. Now, some theories about the seven plagues of uh, Egypt that befell when Moses said, you know, let my people go. They do a wonderful job, first off, making this into a montage. And the actors do a fantastic job of just playing the scenes well for voice actors. That's an important aspect. This is where you really have to choose the right people. And I'll get to what I mean by that uh, in a little while, but bear with me. So I misspoke. It was 10 plagues of Egypt. I apologize. So the first one is, of course, the waters of the Nile turning into blood. Now, scientifically, we could explain this away by saying that it was red algae or some such, which still would make the water undrinkable. So his two uh, high priests show that they can do exactly the same. And he's like, ah, see, it's a trick. I won't buy into your foolery. So it's, it's a little bit daunting the way that they portray it because it's done very powerfully. So you've got frogs that come up from the water. Well, if they can't breathe under the water and they can't find insects to eat, then yes, all of the frogs that live in the water would come up. So then you have boils. Now, if it was a particular kind of algae that had um, just the wrong elements into it, where it was poisonous, and people were trying to wash themselves with water from the Nile, or even water from wells that were fed by the Nile, it is possible that you could have boils as a direct result. We know, thanks to stuff from Flint, uh, that washing yourself with river water is not the best idea because of all of the heavy minerals that can be contained in rivers. It's very saline. So if the pH was thrown off enough, frogs would escape it. If it was algae, frogs would escape it and it would cause it. It's possible that the pH and uh, the algae could have acted together and could cause boils. Now that does not explain the raining hailfire. That one is very hard to explain with science. But, of course, we know what the final plague is. It's a revisiting of what the previous pharaoh had done to the Jews when Moses was set into a basket along the river to be then found by the wife of the pharaoh, the queen. So... Yeah. Fun little fact there. That little uh, origin story from Moses is the basis for Superman being sent away from Krypton as it's doomed. And before you go and say, oh, well, how can that be true? Um, the guys who wrote um, Superman, Siegel and Schuster, they were a couple of Jews from Cleveland. So yeah, when they made up the character, they were thinking of an origin and they went back to 
their Torah study. Now, getting back to the actual story at hand, of course, everyone knows that the final plague is a revisiting because, oh, that Pharaoh decided to kill all the firstborn sons. I guess maybe there was a prophecy or something like that, that a firstborn son of an Israelite would lead to, you know, something bad for whatever. But anyway, so they showed this, but they do it in a very, um, a, a very not so upsetting way, which is important because you've got a problem where you're showing children dying in a movie that you're trying to aim at all audiences, including at children. And I think they they toned it down just enough to where it looks like Pharaoh's son just died peacefully. So worth noting. And of course, uh, as I'd noted a little while ago, Tutankhamun was considered the boy king and he had a very short reign of only about eight years. And, you know, they, they gave him that nickname because he died around 18 or 19. So you could kind of see how the Tutankhamun story could be worked in to the story of Moses. So this is one of the reasons why I think that you could easily fit all of that in and make it work a little bit better, where Tutankhamun was the son that died, and uh, then the next person to take over was A, the second. And that I, I'm just guessing that's how you pronounce his name. But he was a vizier to Tutankhamun, and uh, they note about him that he was an, an important official during the reigns of Akhenaten and Smenkare. And he was possibly the brother of Tie, who was the uh, first wife of Amenhotep III. So that would have been Akhenaten's uh, father. And he was also possibly the father of Nefertiti, who was... In turn, the first wife, the great wife, as they called her, of Akhenaten. So all of this plays in a little bit better as soon as you try to factor in the Tutankhamun, Akhenaten, and Nefertiti part of the story to where if it was Akhenaten who was the pharaoh during the Moses story, it makes way more sense than Ramses. So, anyway, the music itself is beautiful and very serene. It uh, tries to give itself a certain amount in, in the um, instrumentation and the orchestration and writing of both having the epic orchestra, but also having that certain feel of the Middle East. So, a certain feel um, that makes it pretty good for uh, trying to be representative of the Northern African and uh, Arabian Peninsula, Middle Eastern, Southern Mediterranean cultures. 
just trying to play it just so. Okay. So, naturally, a couple of years later, we got Joseph, King of Dreams, which was made with pretty much all of the creative talent that they could get. Part of the problem with this particular movie is that it had way too many writers. So it shifts tone a lot. You've got some really good direction by Robert Ramirez and Rob LaDuca. But then they chose a cast, and boy, did they choose a cast. They didn't necessarily choose a bad cast, mind you, all around, but there was one eensy-weensy little bitty problem. For the character of Joseph, they cast Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck has an intonation range of approximately three notes total. He can barely intonate any lower or higher than any other note. It just, it doesn't come in. You'll occasionally hear him give a relatively interesting delivery on some of his working Kevin Smith movies, but that's about it. And you're casting him in a musical. Okay, so getting away from that. What is it about Joseph King of Dreams? Is it any good? Well, yes. In a lot of ways, I like the story of Joseph a lot better. I think it's a more compelling story. A lot of people, especially in the Jewish community, tend to see Moses as a greater patriarch than Joseph. But I like Joseph's character more. And really, nobody badmouths Joseph as, you know, in comparison. They, they, they still like Joseph, and and if you were to uh, talk about musicals that had previously been established, of course, you'd have to mention Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But this one still stands out. This one is still good. Why do I say that? Okay. Well, putting aside Ben Affleck, who does an okay job on the line delivery, even though he's playing a teenager, and at this point he was a bit older than that. They might have still caught him when he was at least in his late teens, but he sounds like he's not very young when he's playing the parts. Okay. You got Mark Hamill as Judah, and he steals the frigging show. He is amazing in every scene that features Judah. He plays it so perfectly to part. Okay, beyond that, who else have you got? You've got Steven Weber from Wings and uh, the 90s version of The Shining playing Simeon. And he does a surprisingly good job. Why? Because when he acts, he actually doesn't really act with his face so much as he does with gestures and his voice. So he'll have limited facial expression. In You know, he might do a little bit of a smirk. He might do a little thing with his eyebrows. I recently watched a Stephen Weber movie that, weirdly enough, I think, if I remember correctly, also had Molly Shannon in it, in which he goes back and relives his Christmas until he gets it right. Only 
it's not so much like he falls asleep or something, but he actually dies. So it's a little bit more grim. It's not bad, though. It's worth watching. But, okay, so you've got some good actors in a lot of different roles, but who else is in it that makes it just that little bit better? Richard McGonagall. Who's he? You wouldn't recognize him if you looked at him, but if you heard him, and if you've played or watched any Let's Plays of Uncharted, you'll know him as Sully. He has, when he plays Ramses the First, even though I don't think the Pharaoh in the Joseph story was Ramses the First. That aside, when he plays Pharaoh, they use his voice. They let him really go for it in terms of describing the dreams. And that's another thing that I need to touch on. Although the animation for this movie that wound up being direct-to-video is very lackluster in a lot of the musical numbers and scenes compared to The Prince of Egypt, this movie has some of the best animation devoted to its dream sequences. By the end of the movie, you really do like Joseph, even though he goes on a bit of a journey as a character. The writing is there. The writing is very strong, and I'll tell you why. At some point in development, as they were hammering away at this script with all these different writers, uh, Eugene Bostwick Singer, Raymond Singer, Joe Stillman, and Marshall Goldberg, at some point in development, they eventually figured out that this needed to be a story about people, which is exactly what almost every Bible story is. They're all stories about people. They're all stories about a person on a journey through their life. That's how most Bible stories work out. They aren't about events. They aren't about plots. They're about a person going through some stuff. And just a little thing from the Wikipedia piece. Um, composer Daniel Pelfrey stated that the film was designed as a companion piece to The Prince of Egypt, so it's very appropriate that I got both movies in a two-disc set. Uh, but he noted that Joseph turned out to be very different than The Prince of Egypt. He was very challenging and rewarding. Co-director Robert Ramirez has said that while the reviews for the film had generally been very good, there was a period when the film was not working very well, when the storytelling was heavy-handed and clunky. And to that I would, I would absolutely agree. Some elements of this don't work as well. Some of the scenes when he's in Egypt painting on the walls, painting murals and things like that, don't work as well. Other parts don't always work as well. Having the brothers just be basically wicked and evil and really villainous at the start doesn't quite work as well. But when the film works, it works very well. One of the main problems I think that came up with it was the audience had changed by November 2000 when the film came out. By this time, some of the love for The Prince of Egypt had dialed down a little bit. And also, Ben Affleck, as I mentioned, is not a very strong voice actor. 
you really need to cast someone who can do the part well. But the opening musical numbers, because there are a couple just within the first 10 minutes, they work pretty well. Most of the musical numbers work pretty well. The animation does suffer a little bit, because by this time, DreamWorks had lost a lot of its faith in its 2D animated films. Like, uh, I think the Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron hadn't worked as well as they had thought. Even though everyone I know who's seen it loved it. They liked the original music, they liked the animation, they liked the sound design that actually used real horse noises. In, and just, like, use sound editing to pick the ones that seemed to be expressing the emotions that they wanted the horse character con to convey. But anyway, I, I have a copy. A former girlfriend showed me uh, the movie, and I liked it, and I wanted to make sure that I had it. But anyway, so the story of Joseph is really good they do a wonderful beautiful job of animating the uh, coat of many colors it's very well done in terms of a lot of its animation style but it does feel like the budget was dialed down considerably like they were able to do some parts and that was where the money went i mentioned the dream sequences being animated very well that's clearly where they put the money in other scenes, they clearly use a CGI background that isn't very well composited in terms of like how it looks versus the 2D cell animation, if you follow. You have to make it look just right. You have to lend it a certain amount of the right weight so that you have all the right shadows and highlights on the figures as you do on the wall. And it just looked a little bit too much like 2D animation in front of a CGI background. Kind of like, um, what is it, Mortal Kombat The Adventure Begins? The companion short that uh, told the story of their boat ride. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, anyway. So there's not a lot of information as to how this one did, but... I think one of the other problems with it in terms of its reception was that it was largely made for Gentiles and you're telling a story about some very, very Jewish characters. You're telling a story that comes from the oral tradition of the Jewish people and was later documented down. And it was meant to have a certain amount of morality placed into it. I think that the way that they treated Joseph in the story was very compelling. They bothered to give him PTSD and a lot of flashbacks over the grief of having his brothers sell him into slavery. He could still hear their voices and see their faces laughing at him as they taunted him and sent him away. And later on, he has turned cold after years of being separated. But despite this, when he meets his younger brother, Benjamin, and Benjamin looks just like a, young, a younger version of him, 
it makes a huge difference. It is the emotional turning point that stops him from completely and totally just seeking revenge. So, I think that largely these films saw an audience with the church-going crowd and thought that maybe they could show these to the kiddos, maybe if there was a longer service or something, like an Easter service and you didn't necessarily want the kiddos um, bouncing around the room because they were hopped up on jelly beans or something. But as it is, I kind of liked both. They both work in their own way. They aren't too dated, uh, but you can also tell that uh, Joseph had the lower budget. But as it is, they both work really well. They aren't trying to treat the Bible as a fairy tale, which is something they could have easily done. Instead, they try to give it a certain amount of respect and make it relatively timeless so that you'll want to watch it. I think that the other cast members pull a lot of the weight. So it's a true ensemble. So if something slips a little bit with, like, for example, Ben Affleck, the other cast members pick up the slack. But I think that with Prince of Egypt, you definitely have a winner. That one, they made three times their budget back, but given that the budget was $70 million, that's a lot for an animated feature. A lot of it was CGI, a lot of it was the large cast of A-list celebrities. Whereas Joseph King of Dreams, you have a few from the B-list, the C-list at the time. You know, I'm not calling Mark Hamill a B-lister. I'm saying that, you know, maybe Stephen Webber or something like that. A lot of the money would have gone into Affleck's pocket. But the other aspect to consider is that they would have done a lot of the recording years before the movie finally came out. Probably around the same time that The Prince of Egypt came out. And they were like, okay, we're already going to start recording for the sequel or the prequel, whatever you want to call it. I call it a prequel because chronologically it is. But what do you think? Do you think I have that uh, thing about the pharaohs on the money with Amenhotep III with that really long reign and then Akhenaten and then kind of sharing the reign with uh, Neferwaten, a.k.a. Nef the possible origin of the Nefertiti figure, and Tutankhamun, who died young and could have possibly been subject to the mysterious 10th plague. What do you think? Let me know. I'd love to hear it. Until next time, thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.